Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. And the word of the Lord reads this way. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I just want to welcome you back to the fifth and final part of our series titled Sola, which is subtitled The Heart of the Reformation. Sola is this little uh, word in Latin that means alone or only. Uh, it means by itself. Sola is, uh, is what we call an adverb in, uh, in grammar. And itself, by itself, it really means nothing or has no, you know, no weight at all. I mean, if you think about this, if this series was translated into English, this series would be titled Only or Alone, which probably wouldn't inspire very much hope. Uh, but this word sola is, is Latin and it actually carries with it a historic significance. You see, over the last uh, few weeks, we have spent quite a bit of time talking about that significance. In fact, we talked about how it all began October 31st, 1517. This last Tuesday was the 500th anniversary of an event that unexpectedly changed the entire world and ushered in an age that was, that was shaped by this Latin word, sola. Right? And on that date, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, nailed a document to the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany. And that document was called 95 Thesis. And as we discussed, he didn't do this to be rebellious. He didn't do this to start a world-changing movement. He nailed that document to the door because he wanted to have a public conversation. And that's how you did that. That's how you posted things for people to see. Is you nailed it to the door. Right? But... It, uh, he wanted to have a public conversation because after studying the book of Romans, he saw a conflict between what the Bible has to say about the nature of what it means to be saved and what the Catholic Church had to say about what it meant to be saved. And Martin Luther wasn't trying, at least not initially, to change the course of human history. He just wanted to start a dialogue, but inadvertently he started a movement that, that became known as the Protestant Reformation, a movement that changed the entire world, a movement that was defined by and shaped by this word sola. And not only did this movement change how people relate to faith and the word of God and the church, it changed everything else in its wake. We live right now in a country that's founded on, on ideals that are directly related to the development of the Protestant Reformation. One of the major developments that came out of the Reformation was the idea that everyone needs to be able to read Scripture, which led to the rise of literacy in the Western world. The Western world owes its value of literacy not to the idea of trying to make people smarter or give them more opportunities through literacy. It's, it was because people in the past saw the value that people needed to be able to read Scripture for themselves. Right? We have public education today in this country as a direct result of the values that came out of the Reformation. 
The Reformation changed everything from the way that, that people work, from the way people relate to their governments, to the way that people actually view the world and themselves in the world. The Reformation changed just about every facet of human life. And over the last few weeks, we spent quite a bit of time talking about this. In fact, we talked at length about this movement and how it got started. And we talked about what motivated Martin Luther to do this. And uh, we talked about a lot of the scope that, that, that all of this movement has touched throughout history. And if you've missed any part of this series, I want to encourage you to either go to our church websites or you can go to our SoundCloud page and you can take some time and listen to what you've missed. Uh, there's quite a bit of history and background that I think would be helpful to you, certainly to, to understand this a little bit better, but also would help you to understand your Christian faith better. And also, you know, uh, how you've come to live in this Western world and how that's been influenced by um, Martin Luther's work. But in a nutshell, the reason why we're talking about this, the reason why this date is so important to us is because this event in history was a catalyst for the recovery of the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? The truth is that Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he says, he says, the righteous shall live my faith. You see, for centuries, the, the church taught that, that, if you, if, that if you want to be righteous, you certainly need to believe in God. You certainly need to have faith in God, but you also have to be baptized, and you have to make confession, and you have to receive sacraments from the church, and then you need indulgences, and you need last rites, and you need confirmation, and, 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 and over the centuries... Justification in the church became something that was not just about faith, but instead it became about all the other religious rites and rituals that a person had to take part in. According to the church, the righteous live by faith and all this other stuff as well. But during the Reformation, the truth of the gospel was recovered. Salvation was not all about this other stuff, right? Salvation is about God and what he has done for us. And so out of this Reformation comes this Latin word sola, which means only or alone. The church at the time actually agreed with the reformers. They said, yes, you must have faith in Christ to be justified. But the church throughout history kept adding to that. Yes, you must have faith in Christ to be justified. It's just that's not enough. You need more than just faith because, faith because faith in Christ are not sufficient enough to save you. You need more than faith. You need more than grace. You need more than Christ. Right? You actually need the church. You need traditions. You need sacraments. You need good works. But the reformers pushed back on this idea and said, no, Christ is sufficient. Faith is sufficient. Grace is sufficient. The word of God, right, the word of God is sufficient to tell us that, right? You don't need church traditions. You don't need all these other things, right? And the reformers took the word of soul and they used it in a way to communicate the heart of the gospel, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of that came five slogans, five sola statements to help to communicate the heart of the life-saving message of the gospel of Jesus Number one was the first one was sola scriptura. Scripture alone, the word of God alone is our final authoritative standard for truth. Not church councils, not traditions, not hierarchy, not the opinions of men. The word of God alone is the final authority 
for truth and doctrine. And then out of the scriptures, we discover that we are saved by sola gratia. Right? By grace alone. You're not saved because of what you do. We're not saved because of our good deeds or outweighing our bad deeds. We're not saved because we're religious and we perform all these rituals. We are saved by the grace of God. Salvation is a gift, a free gift of a loving God and he, that, he, that he gives to us freely. And we receive that by sola fide, which is faith alone. We don't receive justification by earning it. We don't receive it because we did something to make God like us. Right? We, don't, we don't keep this gift because we keep doing good works to stay in God's favor. We receive the gift of eternal life. We receive justification by faith alone. By faith itself. Apart from anything else we could do. And the object then of that faith is solus Christus or Christ alone. The object of our faith is not the church. The object of our faith is not, is not a pastor. Right? We're not trusting the church to save us. The object of our faith is not the priesthood. The object of our faith right, is not rituals. The object of our faith is the one who can actually deliver the promise to save us. The object of our faith is Christ, God in the flesh. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and that is the heart of the gospel that was rediscovered during the Protestant Reformation. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is all made very clear to us by the authority of Scripture. Sola Scriptura. And what we... And we talked a lot about that the last four weeks. You've probably learned more about the Reformation you probably wanted to. Not to mention, probably every channel you've turned on, they've been talking about Martin Luther on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel and every other channel. But we spent four weeks talking about these last four sola statements. But today we're going to wrap up this series um, on the Reformation. And and we're going to do so with perhaps the most important of all of these sola statements. Soli Deo Gloria. Or for the glory of God Alone, And it might surprise you that I would say that this is the most important of the sola statements, because I believe that. Right? I, I, I mean, of all the statements, I believe this is the most important of them. And you might actually wonder why. I mean, who can understate the importance of the world finally being told that man is not saved by his own efforts, you know, but by grace alone through faith alone? And what about solus Christus? Jesus Christ was the most important human being in all of human history. Why isn't solus Christus the most important of the sola statements? Well, grace is important because it's how God extended justification to us. Right? And faith is important because it's how we receive the justification. I mean, um, and, and Jesus is certainly important because he's the one who's the anchor and, and the object of our faith. He's the one that bridges the gap between God and man. But soli deo gloria, the, the glory of God alone actually gets to the ultimate reason why salvation is even possible. Because, because this, you know, without soli deo gloria, salvation is really actually impossible and it's really actually kind of pointless. Because ultimately what we need to understand, ultimately what we need to come to terms with is the gospel, justification, and all of these sola statements ultimately are not about you. Your salvation, as personal as it is to you, is not 
about you. And I know that might seem counterintuitive to you, but it's not the gospel and the reformation and these five solo statements that change the world and give us hope ultimately is not about us. And this right here is a truth that really gets lost in our culture. This is a truth that he gets easily lost even in the church. In fact, this is a truth that's been forgotten and has led to many churches and denominations to become people-centric rather than God-centric. The center of their theology is people and not God. But the truth is, all of this isn't even about us. You see, these statements do affect you. Right? Yes! You are a recipient of God's grace through faith in Christ. Hallelujah to that. Right? And yes, you're justified on the basis of grace alone through faith alone. And yes, Christ died for you in your sins. But ultimately, it's not about you. It's about God. It always has been. And this is important because we live in a very individualistic culture that says it is about you. That everything in your life is about you. Your job is about you. Your family is about you. Your stuff is about you. Your money is about you. Your time is about you. Your attention is about you. That's what we grow up hearing. It's what we grow up believing. And every marketer in the world is telling you it's about you. Every company has an angle to sell you something. To tell you it's about you. They tell us all the time. You deserve this. You need this. Right? Why not indulge a little? Why not live a little? It's about you. That's what they tell us. The world revolves around you. And much of the church is bought into this idea. Right? And not just back then, but, but now. In fact, let me just let me ask you a question. I'll admit it's a pointed question. But it is a simple question nonetheless. And it's a question that most people... Christians get wrong. In fact, for lots of years, I've got this question wrong myself. And the question and the answer to the question might even surprise you. But the question is simply this. Why did Christ come to the earth? Yeah, I know it's a loaded question. I get that. But it's a basic question. Why did Christ come to the earth? I mean, what was was the purpose of that? Now, people in the church will say, as I've said many, many times myself, Jesus came to the earth. To save us from our sins. Or Christ came to the earth to die for us so we can be saved from our sins. That's what most people say. In fact, how many of you have said that or say that right now? Okay? All right. Um, Bear with me. Okay? But that's incorrect. Ultimately, that was not the purpose of Christ coming to the earth. It is certainly an effect of Christ coming to the earth. It certainly was something that was accomplished when Christ came to the earth. But that was not the purpose of Christ coming to the earth. And before you get upset with me and call me a heretic, I want you to hear me out. You being saved from your sins is an effect of Christ coming to the, to the earth. But it is not the purpose. Your justification is actually a means to achieve God's purpose. Right? But it's not the purpose itself. Still confused, maybe? All right. 
You see, Christ did die on the cross, yes. And he did take upon himself your sins to the cross. And in return, he gives you his righteousness, the righteousness of God. And yes, he suffered and died because he loves you and he knows you. And yes, he sets you free from both the penalty and the power of sin. And yes, he offers you internal life through faith in that. That is absolutely the truth. But ultimately, Christ didn't do that for you. He did it for a much bigger reason than just you or me. And that's the place where we need to change our hearts and minds. Christ did all of this for a much bigger reason than you in your life. The reason why Christ died on the cross, the purpose of that sacrifice on your behalf was ultimately for soli deo gloria. Or for the glory of God alone. That's the reason why he died. That's the reason why Christ came to the earth and suffered and died in the first place. It was to glorify God. Jesus Christ glorified the Father through his life, death, and and resurrection, making a way to save you by grace. Your salvation was not the purpose of Christ's coming. Your salvation is the means by which Christ Achieved the purpose that God ultimately had for him, which was to glorify God. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Christians, we need to stop thinking that the world and our life is centered on us. You are not saved for you. You are saved You're not saved simply so you could just be saved and hallelujah, I'm saved. You were not saved because you deserved it. God saved you in spite of the fact that you didn't deserve it. You were saved because God is glorified through saving you. You were saved to glorify God. You were created not for you. You were created to glorify God. All of creation was created not so that creation could exist. It was created for a purpose. And that purpose is for the overwhelming glory of God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, beginning verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift? Given a gift to him that he might be repaid for, and I want you to hear this, for from him and through him and to him are all things, all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All of creation is about the glory of God. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says, You are, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you, right? Created, what? All things. And by your will they existed and were created. All of creation is about God. All of creation was brought in existence for a purpose, and that was to glorify God. The plan of redemption is about God and his glory. Christ coming to the earth is about God and his glory. Your life and your salvation, not about you, is about God and his glory. 
In fact, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a document that was written to teach people and, and, and to communicate the truths that were discovered in the Reformation. And it helps to teach foundational theology. And it's a document that helps to teach the truth about the Christian faith. And the very first thing that the catechism does is it asks a question. And the question is this, is what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of man? I mean, this is a question that's akin to what's the purpose of life, really, is another way to say that. What's the point? Why was man created? Why am I here? We've heard other people say. What's the purpose? What's the goal? What is the chief end of man? And the answer found in this catechism is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is why man was created. Man was created to glorify God by his life. And in so doing that, enjoy God, treasure God. For how long? Forever. It's our purpose in life to bring glory to God and to value him and to love him above all things. It's the purpose of who we are. It's the purpose of all creation. That's why God created the universe. That's the purpose But as we know, something happened, though, right? Man decided somewhere along the way not to glorify God, but instead glorify himself. In fact, that's in essence what happened in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And then he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And there's the temptation, right? You'll be like God. You will too be glorified. Right? Because it's not about just God's glory, it's about your glory. And isn't it just like us? I mean, don't really we kind of instinctively want the credit for stuff? Don't we want to be recognized? Right? Don't we want people to give us a little bit of glory? Don't we all on some level want a little bit of glory? I mean, try coaching a football team. The most important job on a football field is the guy who blocks. Right? You need more guys to block than anything else. It's the most important job because if no one blocks, then nothing happens, right? But guess what? Nobody wants to block. Everybody wants to run the ball. Everybody wants to be the quarterback. Everybody wants to be the guy that that, that runs the ball. Why? Because everybody wants the glory. When God created the world, the Bible says it was very good. And Adam and Eve lived in a state where God's purposes were fulfilled. God's glory was evident and mankind was able to enjoy God in a way that we can't even imagine at this moment. He was able to live with God in a personal relationship with God. Mankind literally walked with God. And mankind lived in a perfect world where God's glory was evident all around them. And and men could enjoy God in ways, again, like we couldn't even possibly think about right now. But that all changed because Adam and Eve, right? God's purpose wasn't enough for them. 
They wanted to be like God. They wanted not to glorify God, but in a sense glorify themselves. They put themselves above God. For them, creation and their lives was no longer about his glory, but it was about them and their desires and ultimately their glory. And as a result, they rebelled and all of creation was thrown into chaos. Sin and death entered the world. Pain and destruction followed close behind and mankind became separated from God. Mankind became spiritually dead and as a result was unable then to fulfill his purpose. He was unable to fulfill his chief end. He was unable to glorify God and certainly was unable to enjoy him. And notice when when mankind was able to do so, when he was able to fulfill his purpose, when he was able to glorify God, things were good. They were perfect. But when he decided to glorify himself, that's when everything went wrong. When mankind made it about himself instead of about God, everything went sideways. And worse, right? not only did he not glorify God, but he became incapable to do so. Mankind became spiritually dead. Incapable of glorifying God and incapable of enjoying him. And that is why Christ came into the world. That's why God sent him. God sent Christ to restore what was broken. Right? He, he came to, to restore what was broken. He came so that man and God can once again have a relationship. He came so that man was capable once again of glorifying God and enjoying him. And the reason why Christ died on the cross was ultimately for God's glory. Right? And your salvation is a means to that. Your salvation is a restoration to the way things were supposed to be. And then as an extra bonus, it's actually what's best for you. What's best for you is that it's not even about you. Your salvation is about God and his glory. He was glorified when you were saved. Not only did you receive eternal life, not only did the Holy Spirit come and live inside of you, not only did God's promise to never leave you or forsake you become real for you, not only that, God was glorified when you were saved. And that was what's best for you. That's why... You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. The purpose of salvation, the purpose of Christ dying on the cross was to restore purpose for your life, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And you, which may cause some of you to ask them, what really is then the glory of God? And what does this really have to do with me enjoying him? Well, the glory of God is something we talk about all the time. We talk about it all the time. It's something I believe most of us have a, a pretty good sense of internally, right? I mean, well, if I say the glory of God, everybody probably has a picture in their head, kind of maybe what that feels like or looks like. We kind of have a feeling of what God's glory is. And I believe that most of us will probably relate it to light or radiance or beauty. I believe that we think that people are awestruck by God's glory. I think most of us, you know, have an idea, but I think all of us would kind of struggle to define it or put it into words. I mean, if someone would ask you, you know, what is God's glory? I think that you would struggle to define it. And it's not because you're incapable. It's just that God's glory is a really big idea. It's, it's a big 
big idea. It really resists a simple definition. I mean, think about this. The Bible gives us a sense that God's glory is something that's visible, right? I mean, Moses said in, in Exodus thirty three eighteen, show me your glory, right? He wanted to see with his own eyes the glory of God. So it must be something manifest, right? Exodus 24, 17 tells us the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountains in sight of the people of Israel. Psalm 19.1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God, right? The glory of God is so big that the heavens declare it, right? And, and I mean, when you look up at the stars at night and when you see the, a beautiful sunrise or when you like see those amazing images that are captured by the Hubble Space Telescope, tell me that it's not so, that you don't stand in awe, right? Or you don't just aren't amazed by God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, And so the glory of God does seem, in a sense, to be associated with light and beauty and and a visible, breathtaking grandeur that's connected to it. But it is still much more than that. Because Jesus was standing outside the tomb of Lazarus and he said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, obviously, he's not talking about lights, right? He's not talking about bright lights flashing. He's talking about God's mighty power, the power to bring life back to the who was dead, right? God's miracles are a visible manifestation of his glory. But again... It's more than that, because John said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus exhibited the glory of God. In fact, Paul in Hebrews tells us that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. God's glory is radiant light. God's glory is the beauty of creation. God's glory is his miraculous life-giving power. Jesus, is, Jesus himself is the glory of God. And if that weren't enough, there's still more to this definition. Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is something that we fall short of, Right? When we sin. So the glory of God must be something even more. It actually must have to do with something like his holiness. Which makes sense. Right? Because Isaiah in his book chapter 6 verse 3. He says holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole world is filled full. And and as John Piper points out. Really if you didn't know this verse. You would expect for him to say his holiness. You would expect him to say holy, holy, holy. The, is the Lord God, the whole world is filled with his holiness, which you would expect. But somebody says, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, uh, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled full of his glory. The earth is filled with his glory. Why? Because God is holy. Now, I don't want to lose you today in the theological weeds here, Okay. 
But, but I think that we're beginning to really kind of see the roots of God's glory. You see, the words holy and glory have an underlying idea that tie them together. Right? There's an underlying idea that we really can't see in, in English. But this idea, if we can actually identify it and understand it, it will help us get a sense of why God's glory is so important and why bringing glory to God leads us to enjoy Him. You see, the word holy means consecrated or set apart. Right? It means to be separated from the rest. When God says, consecrate yourself, right? That's what it means. He means set yourself apart. That's what holiness points to. Okay? One, in fact, one of the, uh, the, the Greek words for holiness literally means different. Right? It means unlike anything else. It means special. Right? That's the theme behind the word holiness. When God says, says holy, right? we are, we're, when we say that God is holy, we are saying that he's unique. He is different. He is special. He is unlike anything else. He's one of a kind. He's set apart. And when something is unique and beautiful and there's no other like it, it becomes what? Valuable. Well, the word glory itself then in the Greek is a word doxa, which means honor or, or renown or glory and, you know, or the unspoken manifestation of God or splendor. But at its core, the word doxa means heavy, right? Now, that might seem like a strange word, but you got to think about how the ideas work in Greek. The idea actually is like putting it on a scale and nothing else outweighs it, right? It has to do with value. That's the connection, that's the connection between the words, the, between, between holy and glory is this idea of value. In fact, the root word of doxa conveys, c- conveys God's infinite intrinsic worth or value. Glory and holiness are related to God's worth. That's why we worship. It's from the word worth-ship. Right? It has to do with God's value. That's what it's about. God's worth, God's value. Because think about this. If you didn't exist, what would happen to the universe? Not much. I mean, there'd be people that miss you, and you'd certainly influence history to a certain degree, right? But I mean, seriously, everything else would kind of go. But what happens if God didn't exist? Then nothing else would exist. That's the point. Everything in the universe gets its value. Everything else in the universe gets its value from the one who made the universe, which means God is infinitely valuable. God is infinitely worthy. God's holiness means he is valuable because he's one of a kind. There's nothing like him. He is of inestimable worth because he's the very definition of everything else. He's the definition of goodness. He's the definition of love. He's the full embodiment of grace and mercy and truth. God is greater than all creation. He is infinite and unending. And all other things find their value in him. Because he is all valuable. That's what holiness means. God's glory is is a visible manifestation of his worth. Pastor John Piper defines the glory of God as the going public of God's infinite worth. The holiness of God is is the infinite value and intrinsic worth of God. And his glory is the public manifestation of that. The glory of God is the public display of God's infinite beauty and worth. 
That's why we talk in terms of radiant. That's why it's associated with, with bright lights. Right? That's why the words that we, we, we try to talk about God and don't even fully portray the reality. Right? That's why miracles display his glory. That's why Jesus was the embodiment of the glory of God. God entered into time and space and became a man. And God and man forever are fused together in some inexplainable way in Jesus Christ. God's glory is the visible manifestation of God's infinite worth. That's why we were created in his image. We were created to reflect that worth. No other animal in all creation does that. We were created to demonstrate that. That's why we value human life. People want to know, why do you value human life? It's because every human being is created in the image of God. And in a sense, reflects that glory. And when you put your trust in Christ, then you're called not to just passively bear the image of God. You're called to actively bear the image of God. That's why Jesus says, you are the light of the world. The glory of God, his intrinsic worth, his holiness, his goodness is supposed to be reflected in your life. God's glory is to be evident in your life. You, by your relationship with God, should be a radiant, visible manifestation of his amazing worth. He says, you are the light of the world. He didn't say you are a light. He says, you are the light. The light that comes from you is the the light of God. So let it shine. Let it be seen. Glorify God in your actions and in your life and your decisions. And then he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. The glory of God is not supposed to be concealed in your life. He says it's supposed to be put on a stand, on display. The glory of God is to be on display for all to see. And the reason for that is it gives light to all in the house. It gives light to everyone around you. It gives light to those, for others to see God's goodness and his beauty and his worth in you. You're supposed to shine so that others can see the glory of God and come and then receive life also. In fact, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Let the glory of God shine through you. So that they may see, they may behold your good works, the things that you do because God is alive in your life. And as a consequence, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your salvation is for the glory of God. And because of that, the light of God shines in you, right? And others see it in you and in return are attracted to God. So they too may then receive justification by grace through faith in Christ. So they too fulfill their purpose, which is what? To glorify God. God's glory, God's value, God's worth is ultimately the reason why justification is even possible, why it even makes any sense. Now, you might think, all right, I get that. All right. I agree that I'm, you know, I was saved for God's glory and and, and more than than that, the purpose of my life is to, to glorify him. But how does enjoying God fit into that purpose? I mean, 
You said man's chief end is glorify God and enjoy him forever. How does that fit? I mean, God's glory and even my salvation are not about me. They're about God. So how does me enjoying God fit into that? It seems like to me, me enjoying things is kind of selfish. Isn't that about me? In a sense, it seems like it's about me instead of God. I'm enjoying God, right? And that, isn't that me just making it about myself then? Well, it really just comes down to the understanding of enjoying. Because how, do, you know, how does someone bring joy to you? How do you experience joy in your life? I mean, my children bring me joy. My wife brings me joy. Right? I enjoy my family. Why? Because they're important to me. Right? They're valuable to me. Right? They have great worth to me. As a consequence, I enjoy them. They bring joy to me. That's why I enjoy fishing. Right? Because the experience of fishing is of great worth to me. So much so, I'll actually spend money to go do it. Right? That's how we experience joy. It's through the value that we have. In them. It's how we value them. Right? Everything we enjoy is rooted in what its worth is to us. So how do you then enjoy God? You value him. You prize him. You desire him above all things. You value his worth. You value his presence. You value his fellowship in your life. You value his life-giving grace. You value his mercy. You value his wisdom. You value the fact that, you'll, that he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You value the, the fact that, that he's promised that all things will work together for good for you because you love him. You value the fact that he's promised that he's already prepared a place for you and he's going to come back for you. You value the fact that that he loved you so much that Christ willingly died for your sins. He died to give you the righteousness that you need to have eternal life. And in return, you will live with him and enjoy him face to face forever and ever and ever and ever. Glory, hallelujah for that. What an amazing and wonderful God that the very act of glorifying him is ultimately bringing greater and greater gifts in my life. And is is the source of true unending joy. That's the truth that we, that we, that we need to live under. That's the light of the gospel that we need to live under. God saved Me, so I can glorify him in front of the rest of the world. And in the process, my life becomes filled with overwhelming joy that comes from being saved. What an amazing God indeed. What a wonderful and wise God. Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. What, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him through him and to, to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Rejoice, Christian. 
That's what God's divine, that this, this is God's divine plan, that you are to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. And it was for God's glory and as a result for your overwhelming joy. Glory, glory be to our God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I read your word. I meditate on these truths. Time and time again, you bring me to this place where I'm moved to tears. That ultimately, what's... That ultimately, my life being lived for you is what's best for me. It's all about you, Lord. You're the eternal God who decided for some reason to create a world. And you created for your glory. And in that, your glory is actually what's good for me. Lord, you're amazing. I just struggle to wrap my head around the beauty of that. That my, 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 my purpose in life is to, to glorify you, to show your worth, to show your value to the rest of the world. And in the process, as a result of that, enjoy you forever. And you know, as hard as that's for me to understand, the hardest part for me to understand is all that works out by you saving a jerk like me. You sent your son on the cross to die for me. And in the process, you've called me to glorify you, Lord. What? My mind can't hold the beauty of that truth. I'm saved by grace through faith in your son Christ for your glory. Lord, may I rejoice in that. Not just today, not just when we talk about the Reformation, but may I just rejoice in that every day that I remember that every part of my life is not about me, it's about you. And that you, Lord, have promised to give me life everlasting and I can spend the rest of my life praising you. I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that this is a truth that would move all of our hearts not to just weep and not to just come to our knees, you know, and, and, and just meditate at the cross, but then to do something about it, that we would go out into the world outside and share the hope of Christ that we have in everyone else, that they would come to know you don't have to earn God's favor. You don't have to earn his love. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And it's for his glory and your joy. Praise you, Lord, for that. Raise up a people in this church who are passionate about that. We love you. We praise you. We pray that for all those who are not here. We pray that you're glorified in every word and every act. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.